Let's pray. Father, I do pray that what we just sang will be true. Father, I pray that we would be willing to surrender everything. Our reputation, our time, talents, money, whatever it is. Father, I pray that we would be willing to surrender all of it to You. For Your glory and for Your honor. Because the reality is, is that that's why we're here. We're here to use everything we have for Your glory and honor. And so right now, as we open Your Word and look into it, I pray this would be for Your glory. And that You would use it to to teach us, to stir in our souls uh, our commitment or recommitment towards You. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Let me invite you to go back to Mark's Gospel and that... Uh, fourth chapter, page 839, again, if you're using one of the, the Bibles provided for you there. And as you do that, I, I, because we've already read the text, I'm not going to uh, read the entire thing uh, once again, but I did want to kind of summarize Jesus' ministry a little bit. So in this section, I think we, we see Mark has given us some bookends that we can see that kind of gives us that this is a section of Scripture that Mark has some intention for us. And so as you're reading the Bible, you should be looking for some of these markers. You should be looking for things that maybe are repeated, uh, particularly in these narrative sections like in the Gospels. So as you study the Bible, as you read the Bible, look through and see maybe some things that are repeated. And, And as I read earlier, maybe you saw some things coming up over and over again. But here we have, in the beginning, we have Jesus, he's in the boat, and a lot of this, this the, the scene is surrounded uh, uh, around the Sea of Galilee, or if sometimes you'll read in some translations, the Lake of Tiberias, it's the same body of water that is fed by the Jordan River uh, that eventually goes into the Dead Sea. And so this lake, this sea, is not very big. And in fact, it's only about 33 miles in circumference. Okay, So it's really not that big. Uh, when you're there, you actually can see on the other side of it. Uh, in 2005, I believe it was, my, my wife and I had the opportunity to, to go to Israel. And we spent, I think, uh, 10 days or so there. And I remember going on to the Sea of Galilee and, and where all this is taking place. I remember actually going out into a boat and then they, they demonstrated how the fishermen in Jesus' day would have been fishing. But I remember looking and thinking that this lake, it doesn't look very big because my whole life I heard it called the Sea of Galilee. And, and for some reason I always thought that this was this massive body of water, but it's really not that big. But it was well known because of the, it's a low-lying lake and the mountains nearby. It's for winds to come in and swirl around and cause uh, storms to come up very quickly. It's well known even to this day that that happens. And it was well known in Jesus' day that these storms will come up very quickly. And in Mark's this section here, Mark chapter 4, at the end of the fourth uh, chapter here, what we know as the fourth chapter he, he begins to, to, to tell us that they're in this boat and Jesus is, 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 is exhausted and he lays down and goes to sleep. And there he's sleeping and then the storm comes up 
And the disciples, they're, they're trying to get through the storm, and so they, they say, don't you care that we're dying here? They literally thought they were dying. Now, you've got to remember, these were fishermen. These were people who spent lots of time on the sea. And so for them to think that they were about to die, the storm had to be pretty severe. Many people have drawn parallel to this text or this illustration or this story of Jesus with the story of Jonah. And remember, Jonah was asleep in the boat. And remember that we find in Matthew's Gospel that Matthew says, one greater than Jonah is here. He quotes Jesus as saying that. So here we have Jesus. He's, he gets through the storm. He stands up and he says, peace be still. He rebukes the storm. The storm ceases immediately and the disciples are amazed. And Jesus says, why don't you believe? He's, he's astonished at their unbelief. That's the first marker. So then we go through the next scenario, and then we get into the next chapter. And then, of course, he gets to the other side, and then there's this maniac of Gadara, as some people call it, a demon-possessed man, someone who that they didn't know how to deal with, and so they bound him with chains. But he was so strong, he had this, this strength that the, the, the demons were giving him. He was breaking these chains, and he was in torments the entire time. I think the, the details that Mark gives here is because uh, he wants us to understand that that is the intention of demonic activity, is to destroy us. And so this man, he's, he's crying out, he's living among the tombs because he's literally a dead man walking and he's, and he's cutting himself and he's, he's just trying to kill himself and, and to get out of this world because this world is terrible for him. And so he wants to leave this world and then he meets Jesus, he falls at Jesus' feet. Then what happens is Jesus casts out the, de- the demons and they go into the pigs and we can go into all sorts of you know, things about that, but uh, we won't take time to do that. So they go, the pigs kill themselves in the, in, the, in the sea. And people say, why would Jesus allow all those pigs to be killed? I mean, that's a lot of bacon, okay? <laughs> you know, why did he destroy all that? Well, I think the reason why was because he wanted it to be on public display that that is the intention of demonic activity is to destroy and to kill. So then Jesus meets up with this ruler, ruler of the synagogue. Jairus is his name. He comes and he begs Jesus. He says, my daughter's about to die. Literally the way that's written, it means she is on death's door. We have moments left. It was a very impassioned plea saying, we have very little time. Please help my little girl. She's 12 years old. Help her. So Jesus says, I'll go with you. So he starts walking. And then there's a crowd following him because, I mean, they'd seen what he'd just done with, they'd heard about the storm. They'd heard about the, uh, uh, um, the, the maniac being, the demons being uh, uh, cast out. And so now they're like, man, we're going to see something else. And so the crowds are following him. And on the way there, this lady, this lady who's been sick, she's had this, this hemorrhaging issue for 12 years. 12 years she's been doing she's She's not named in the text. She's, she's, because of her condition, she would have been considered unclean in society. And so she couldn't have interacted with people. And so she goes and she goes through the crowds and she just says, if I can just touch his garment, I will be healed. And she does. And she's healed. And then so Jesus says, man, I, I know this power just left me. And so he says, who, who touched me here? And the disciples are kind of irritated, and they say, what do you mean? Look at other people. How do you mean that, you know, who touched me here? 
And the lady comes and explains all that she did, and he says, your faith has made you whole. Well, while this is happening, people come from the ruler's house and says, don't bother anymore. Don't bother coming. She died. Can you imagine what Jairus would have been thinking in that moment? Couldn't you have gone to my house first and then come back for this lady? But you delayed. And now my daughter's dead. But what did Jesus say? He says, don't fear. Only believe. So then they go, and he says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And so they laugh at him, and he kicks them all out. And then in a very, very tender way. We don't really get it very well in English translation here, but the words that he's using there is so tender. It's like, it's like a dad going to his daughter, and he says, get up. But it, it, it's the idea of when he says, it'd be like, it'd be like a dad going in in the morning and saying, sweetie, it's time to get up. Sweetie, get out of bed now. We got a lot to do today. Sweetie, get up. That, that, that's kind of the what, what Jesus is communicating here. And she gets up, and the people are astonished. He leaves, and he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And the people, hearing all that had been done, seeing him, they respond in a way that says, who does this guy think he is? Isn't he the son of Mary, which would have been a derogatory term, by the way, because it would always been about the son of Joseph, but because he said son of Mary, it was like, you know, he doesn't even, he's not even a legitimate son to somebody here. They say, who does he think he is? And Jesus is astonished. And so there we have the bookends. With the disciples, he's astonished, and then here in his hometown, he's astonished at people's unbelief. And so if I was going to summarize uh, these, this section of Scripture, I would say that Jesus' power is seen over nature, it's seen over demons, it's seen over diseases, and it's seen over death. Now, if you're looking at that list, and it's really bugging you that one of those isn't a D, you can put deluge in there if you want, Okay. But Jesus shows this extraordinary power here in this text. But is that what the purpose of the text is? So when you're studying the scriptures and you're saying, hey, look, I see this, I see things repeated, I see bookends here. Is that what it is? Was this a time for Jesus simply to flex his muscles, so to speak? Was this a time for Jesus to show his power? Well, partly, yes, he needed to show his power. But I believe Mark includes this, and he puts this in this way, and he gives us, and he packages, and he writes, and delivers it, most likely from talking with Peter and getting Peter's firsthand witness. I believe that Mark wants us to understand that it's the importance of faith and the devastation of unbelief. That's what I believe is happening in this long section of Scripture this morning. That faith in Christ is so important, and if we choose not to believe in Him, if we have unbelief, it's devastating to us. And that is what I hope to explain this morning. So first of all, let me talk about the importance of faith. And so here we see a couple times in the text, we see that Jesus has a commentary about faith here. I don't know if you saw it or not here, but in verse uh, 34 of chapter 5 here, he says this to the lady who has just been healed. He says, uh, uh, do, excuse me, 
he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus right there says that the important part of this section here is that, that there is that, he, that she had faith in him and that's what made him, uh, her well. That she believed, she had such this belief in Jesus that, that she knew that if she just touched the hem of her garment, then that she would be healed. He says, that faith in me has, been, has, is, has made you whole. Go in peace. And then later on, just a few verses down later on, when Jairus and his, and his, uh, uh, his company, they're, they're being told that the daughter is now dead. He says, do not fear, verse 36. Only believe. When you're reading the New Testament, when you see the word faith and you see the word believe, those are really the same word in the original language. This is one's a verb, one's a noun. But it's the same word. And so he's saying here that you just need to have faith. He says, don't be afraid, have faith. And that's actually what I had titled this message. And so Jesus has this commentary on the power of faith here, that it is, it is what the, the, uh, the lady was healed, and then that he told this, this son, uh, or excuse me, this father, to believe in as well. But I want you to look at, and here's some of the, the repetition that I want you to see in this text I think is so important. Mark gives a commentary about the posture of faith. I don't know if you noticed this or not here, but in verse chapter 5, in verse, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 5, the man, the demoniac, he comes and what does he do? He falls down before Jesus. And we see here that in uh, chapter 5, verse 22, that Jairus, when he comes, he falls down at his feet. And we see the lady here who was healed in verse 33. She came in trembling and fell down before him. And so we see these three examples of the demoniac. We see Jairus and see this lady. That In all three of these illustrations that Mark has given to us here about faith, what did they do? They fell at Jesus' feet. They, they came to him and they saw him and they just surrendered everything to him and they fell right at his feet. But also look at how else Mark describes the faith of these people here. The demoniac in verse 14. He says this, uh, excuse me, not verse 14, uh, verse 18. It says that he begged him that he might be with him. He begged Jesus that he would be able to go with him. And this word there has the idea of discipleship because in verse, most people believe that Mark's alluding to this because back in chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, Jesus appointed 12, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. He says, I want you to be with me. I want, to, I want you to travel with me. I want you to be my disciples. I want to teach you. And so this is exactly what this demoniac, who's just had the demons cast out of him, he says, I want to be with you. I want to be near you. I want to know you. I want to learn of you. I want to be at your feet all the time. This is faith in action here. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to go with me. And you're going to go back to your hometown. And you're going to tell people what happened. Now, there's reasons for that, probably because he was a Gentile. So really, this guy, the first Gentile missionary of the world that I can think of, is a guy who is demon-possessed. He says, no, you go back. He probably, Jesus probably knew that if he had this, that this would be a stumbling block to bring in the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And so what does he do? He says, though, he says, I want to be with you. So he falls at his feet. He wants to be near Jesus here the ruler of the synagogue in verse 22 of chapter 5. He, he goes against the institution that was opposing Jesus to get Jesus' help. 
This is faith in action because, you see, the synagogue, the rulers of the synagogue, they weren't looking favorably upon Jesus. We see this earlier here in chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, And when he entered the synagogue, this is talking about Jesus, and a man was there with a withered hand, they watched Jesus. Who's they? The rulers of the synagogue. And what do they want? Why were they watching Jesus? To see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. For what purpose? So that they might accuse him. So it wasn't like the rulers of the synagogue were really happy with Jesus at this point. But here's Jairus, and he sees his daughter in need. And so he goes against what his buddies in the synagogues are saying, his fellow rulers are saying. He goes against the institution, and he says, I am going to go to Jesus. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care if I lose my position. My daughter needs Jesus. I need Jesus. This is faith in action. And Mark has given this commentary about this. What about the lady? The lady, I told you just a few minutes ago, she would have been considered unclean. She was dealing with shame. For 12 years, she had this disease. 12 years. That's a long, long time. And did you notice the description that Mark says that she went to get help from the doctors and no one could help her? And they took all of her money and it says that she grew worse. She was going to die. You see, there's another element that ties all these things together is the element of death. The storm was going to kill those people. The disciples, they said, were perishing. The demoniac was trying to kill himself. Darius' daughter was about ready to die. She was on death's doorstep. And now this lady, she grew worse and worse and worse, and she was going to die. And Jesus says, have faith. Have faith in me. And so this lady an expression of faith. What does she do? She goes to him and she doesn't care what people are saying about her, what people are thinking about her. And she, she runs the risk. Because honestly, there's a huge risk here. Because if she touches someone under the law at that time, as weird as it sounds to us right now, but here in the, it was true in this day, they would have been considered unclean. She would have defiled them. And so here, she has enough faith in the power of Jesus Christ. She has enough faith in in who Jesus Christ is, in the purity of Christ, that she says, I can touch him and I'm not going to defile him. In fact, he's going to make me clean. See, Mark has this commentary going over and over again all throughout this section here of the power of faith and the importance of faith. We fall at Jesus' feet. and We beg to be with Him. Now, I think it's important that we understand that Mark, he sandwiches the story of the lady with the healing of Jairus' daughter, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. And again, if you're studying the Scriptures, when you're reading your devotions or whatever, and you come to these things, ask questions of the text. Why would Mark do that? Why would Jesus stop what he's doing? Why would, why would he do this? Because, I mean, obviously it was, a, it was a pretty important deal for this girl, this little girl, to be healed. Jerry said that she was on death's doorstep, like taking her last breaths. And sure enough, because she dies in the meantime. Why would Jesus interrupt this? Why would Mark insert this story in here and say, this is the account? Well, I think it's because he wants us to contrast. I think as we're looking at this, we see... First of all, Jairus, who has a name, he has position, he has wealth, he has influence. 
And he goes to Jesus, one of the rulers of the synagogue, and says, I need your help. Now, think about it from a purely human standpoint for a second here. Jesus, as I've already pointed out, is not in, he's not finding favor with the people in the synagogue. But if he does this for Jairus, don't you think that would help give him a little bit of clout? But Jesus interrupts this to deal with this nameless lady who was dealing with shame, who had no authority, no position, no power, nothing. She was defiled, and he stops and deals with her, interrupting the work with the nobleman. Jesus is saying, hey, it's not about position with me. It's not about who you are. It's not about your name. It's not about what you can offer me. That is not what my miracles are about. My miracles is not about who is the most strategic for me to help here. This is about me showing love to everybody. So there's a comparison here. And so that what happens here is that he stops and he heals this lady. He interacts with this lady. Jesus didn't have to stop. He, just, he healed her. He could have just kept walking and she would have been fine. But he stopped. Because he's more concerned with the personal relationship with the person, the journey than he is with the end result. He interacts with this lady. And he confirms upon her, says, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. You're healed now. You're whole. And it's because you've had faith in me. And Jairus, he's standing there waiting, tapping his foot. Mark puts this in here to show us that Jesus is not a respecter of persons here. They were both helped by Jesus because they both were equally needy. So the importance of faith. We see this all throughout here. What does it look like? And as I'm asking myself and I'm thinking about this text, I'm saying, do I show this faith in Jesus? Am I willing to surrender all? As we were singing that song a few minutes ago, I was praying. I was praying on the front row. I said, Father, I pray that this would be true of my soul, that I would be willing to surrender everything, that I would be willing to throw everything at the feet of Jesus, that I would be willing to give all that I have my health, my strength, my family, my finances, my reputation, anything, that there would be nothing that I would hold dear to my soul and say, Jesus, you can have everything but this. And that's what we're getting at in this text here. He says, you want to have faith in Christ. You want to know the power of Jesus in your life. Fall at his feet. Every person here fell that experienced this, that Jesus, these illustrations in chapter 5, they fell at Jesus' feet. So how are you falling at Jesus' feet? I mean, daily do you go and say, Jesus, everything I have is yours. Or what is it that we're holding on to? What is it that's so important to us? And I can't answer that question. That's something you've got to wrestle with. Are we like the maniac of Gadara? And do we, after we're healed, do we experience the glory and grace of Jesus Christ? Do we beg to be with Him? Or is it, I'm glad I got eternity settled and I don't, I'm not going to think much about you the rest of the time. You see, faith in Christ does not just get me out of the flames of hell. Faith in Christ is I want Jesus. I want the relationship. Just like Jesus says, I'm not content with just healing this lady by walking by and her touching my garment. I want to stop and I want to have this relationship. Do you think she treasured that conversation for the rest of her life? I do because it was a relationship. 
It wasn't Him just throwing out miracles and not knowing the people. Jesus is a personal God and He knows the storms of your life. He knows the demonic activity against you. He knows the diseases that you fear. He knows the death that is going to come for every one of us. And Jesus cares. He's a personal God. So the importance of faith, but I, I said there's a second part to this, and that is the devastation of unbelief. In verse, back in chapter 4, in verse 40, Jesus says to him, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Have you still no faith? He says. He's astonished at this. Unbelief astonishes Jesus. Now think about that for a second. Think about this is God. This is the one who knows all things. This is the one who is powerful. This is the one who you can't surprise. I mean, playing hide and seek with Jesus would be boring, okay? I mean, he knows everything. He knows where you're at. You can never pull a prank on him because he knows exactly what's happening here. And yet, twice in this text, we see that Jesus is astonished. First in chapter 40 with the disciples. And then it says in verse 6 of chapter 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Unbelief astonishes the all-knowing God. Because honestly, what else does he have to do to show us that he's powerful and that he exists and that he loves us and that he wants what's best for us? What else does he have to do? He has power over everything. And just because he's having you walk through a difficult circumstance doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It means that he's got power over that disease or power over that demonic activity that is assaulting you or power over that storm that you're in. He's got the power over that. He is fine with that, but he's going to use that for your glory. And when we lash out at God and when we say that we have no faith in him or when we refuse to believe in him, Jesus is astonished. He says, what else do I have to do? Do you still not have faith? And it's not in a sense that he's angry with them. It's in the sense of him saying, I've shown you that I love you. And I care for you. It amazes me that God is amazed at unbelief. There's another part of this. I want to be very careful with this. But unbelief limits Jesus. Now, it seems a little shocking to you. He said, wait a minute. A minute ago, you said he's all-powerful. A minute ago, he says he can do whatever he wants. Now you're saying he's limited by unbelief. Is unbelief kind of like Jesus' kryptonite to Superman? I mean, he can do all sorts of things, but man, as soon as a little bit of kryptonite comes close to him in unbelief, then Jesus is, is, is incapable of doing the power. I remember seeing, I think it's Superman 2, one of the older movies. Uh, Gene Hackman plays in it. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, there's a scene of this pool that Superman gets thrown into. Maybe you've seen this before. How many of you know what I'm talking about here? Okay. This illustration just tanked, okay? <laughs> All right. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, he gets thrown into this pool. Everyone just kind of nod and act like you know what I'm talking about. It'll make me feel better. Thank you, Carol. Appreciate that. Okay, so, so Jesus gets thrown into this pool here. At, or, wait, wait, Superman. Okay. 
And that's why I married. <laughs> Keeps my theology straight. <laughs> okay. Let's start this again here. There's this movie called Superman, okay? So Superman gets thrown into this pool. There's kryptonite in there, and he can't do anything. He's weak, and he's just trying, and they put chains on him. And he's like, oh, I can't break this. And before, you know, he would just burst through all these things. You know, that's not what I'm talking about here when I say the unbelievable limits Jesus. Because we've already seen that Jesus can go over anything. And in fact, in a few chapters in Mark's Gospel, we'll find out that Jesus, a man that comes to him for help, and Jesus says, yeah, I can if you believe in me. And what does the man say? He says, I believe. And what's the very next thing he says? Help my unbelief. And did Jesus go, oh, so you got unbelief. Can't do it. No. He does the miracle for him. So what does it mean? What do I mean when I say that this unbelief limits Jesus here? And here's where I'm getting it from the text. It says in verse 5 of chapter 6, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He could do no mighty work there. Now, I don't pretend to know all the nuances of that statement. That is packed. There's lots of theological ramifications to that. But the simplest way for me to understand it and I believe this is what Mark's getting at here, but in the context, is that Jesus couldn't do anything because people weren't coming to Him. I mean, here in this hometown, it says, who is this person? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? What are they saying? They're saying, who is this guy? He's just like us. He's no one special. He's common. There's nothing special about this guy. That's what's happening in this hometown. So Jesus says, if no one's coming to me, if no one's believing that I can actually do things, well, I can't do anything. I wonder how many times we, by our actions, we treat Jesus as another good luck charm. Kind of like a lucky's rabbit, rabbit's foot that we keep in our pocket. Maybe like a, a lamp that we rub for the genie to come out when we need him. This is reducing him to some common fairy tale. But here he says, Jesus says, I'm not doing this because no one's coming to me. No one's approaching me. No one's asking me for help. Unbelief in Jesus limits, or unbelief limits Jesus because it means that people will not come to him. The whole point of miracles is to give faith. It's not for Jesus to impress people. The miracles that Jesus did were not to impress. It was did it to give them faith. And if as he's doing these things, they're not coming to him, and they're not submitting to them, then he says, I can't do this. I can't give you the faith. John chapter 20, verse 31, is that is it where John says these things he did, that you may know that he is the Son of God, and that in by knowing you may have eternal life. That was the reason why Jesus did these mighty works. But I took a few minutes earlier and kind of showed the examples of faith. I want to take just a minute before I close. And what does the examples of unbelief look like in this text? Because I think that could be instructive to us. First of all, I see that the disciples, they were accusatory towards Jesus. In verse 39 of chapter 40, it says, Don't you see that we're perishing? I wonder how many times my heart's been accusatory towards God. 
Don't you see that I'm trying to serve you? Don't you see that I am sacrificing for you? Don't you see this, Jesus? And when I do that, that is unbelief. And Jesus marvels at that. The demons, they try to intimidate and and negotiate with Jesus. A lot has been written about how that they used the name of Jesus, the full name of him, as a way to kind of overpower him. But they also, they says, I adjure you by God. They are actually trying to invoke God against Jesus here, saying, do not torment me. They're trying to negotiate with Jesus, and they're trying to boss Jesus and trying to say, listen, do not do this. I demand this. I wonder how many times I do that. How many times is it in my life, if I were to look back on my life, will I try to negotiate with God? And if I do that, it means I'm not believing in Him. I'm not believing that He knows what's best and that I don't. You see, when I try to negotiate with God, when I get start negotiating with Him and start saying, okay, if you do this or you really should do this, then all I'm saying is that I've got the master plan and I don't trust that you do, so I'm going to inform you of what should be done here. Now, it's not wrong to ask things. Jesus wants us to. It's not wrong for us to say, Father, I wish that this were true. Jesus did that in the garden. But we always must follow it up with, like Jesus did in the garden, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. Unbelief is seen in the negotiation tactics. Unbelief is also seen, did you catch when the herdsmen and the townspeople When they came to Jesus after he cast out the demons into the pigs, did you see in verse 17 of chapter 5, it says, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. Did you catch that? Now, why would they want that? Why why would they? I mean, Jesus just healed this guy. He just did a mighty work in this guy's life. Why in the world would they want Jesus to leave? Well, Luke kind of gives a little more picture to it, but I, I think we can get the same sense here. They had just lost a ton of money. They had just lost a lot of money. 2,000 pigs gone like that. So what were they saying? They were saying, leave me alone. Let me live my life. That is unbelievable. How many times by our own actions and by our own thoughts are we saying, let me live my life. What you ask is too much. Leave me alone. Devastating. Because we're crippling our ability to see the mighty works of Jesus at that point. It's not just the townspeople, but the mourners In verse 40 of chapter 5, when Jesus says, the child's not dead, he's sleeping, she's sleeping. And what do they do? They laughed at him. They said, you're crazy. What you're saying can't be true. It's so ridiculous what you just said that I'm going to laugh. And these were professional mourners here, and it's amazing how fast they went from wailing to laughing. And they said that I, what, you're, what you're saying here is ridiculous and I cannot believe it. And so it actually is laughable how ridiculous what you just said. That is unbelief. You say, well, I'd never laugh at God. 
Well, no, but we do look at what Jesus promises sometimes and we say it's ridiculous and we don't believe it. We say it's too good to be true that you said that you will clean us. You said you will give us a new heart. You said that you will walk with us and yet here I am, I don't feel your presence. So therefore, I laugh at you, Jesus, because you said you would be here, but you're not. And the reality is Jesus is right there. Unbelief. Unbelief. We mock. And then, of course, in verse 3 of chapter 6, the people in his hometown, they took offense. They were embarrassed by Jesus. They were embarrassed that he was from their town. And, and we know that from other parts of Scripture that not even his brothers believed in Jesus before the resurrection. Even his family, in fact, earlier in Mark's gospel, again, to interpret, you've got to understand this, in chapter 3, it says this, and when his family, talking about Jesus, heard what Jesus was saying, they, the family of Jesus, the brothers and sisters, went out to seize him. They went out to grab Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. They were offended by Jesus. They were embarrassed by Jesus. And that is the unbelief here. That Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Are you embarrassed by Jesus? Some of us are willing to depend on Jesus for our, our, the eternal state of our soul, but we cannot find it within us to talk boldly of Him. And you have many reasons for that, but I submit that we ask if it's because we're embarrassed by Jesus. And when that happens, Jesus says, I can't do mighty works here because you've got to come to me. You've got to be with me. You've got to be near me. And then we'll see mighty works. But I can't close without pointing out one other thing quickly. We've seen the importance of faith We've seen the devastation of unbelief. I've got to point out the graciousness of Jesus here. I don't know if you saw it or not. It says, And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then he went among the villages teaching. He still healed some people. He still went out and taught. He didn't take his shoes off, throw them down, and say, Fine, I'm done. I'm going home. I don't need you people. I don't need this. I'm astonished of your unbelief. And I'm just going to go back to the Father. I'm going to go get the glory that I deserve. I'm out of here. He did not do that. He stayed and he taught. And he healed some people. He still did gracious acts. I think of the song, There Shall Be Showers of Blessing. There's this line in it. It says, Mercy drops round us are falling. But for the showers, we plead. God in His graciousness will always do mercy acts. He will always be merciful in doing things and stuff like that. But I believe that if we're not believing in Him, we're not throwing ourselves at Him, we're not d- 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 being near Him, drawing near to Him, I believe that we're just seeing drops. And there's showers waiting. If we just believe. Believe in Him in the way that has been shown here of, of throwing ourselves to Him and saying, I, I accept that you know better than I do. 
So Mark's purpose was to show the importance of faith and the devastation of unbelief. Let me close with this. When the forces of nature seem to be against you, when hell itself seems to be unleashed upon you, when you cannot find relief from the ailments of this life and it's costing you everything and death is on the horizon, fall at Jesus' feet. That's what Mark is saying. And the good news is is that Jesus does not expect you to be stronger than a storm, more mighty than demons, immune to disease or immortal. Jesus is all of that for you. He wants you to abide in Him, like John 15 says. A murderous storm was stopped at the word of Jesus. The powers of hell were brought to their knees at Jesus' presence. Twelve years of shame, frustration, and disappointment are resolved in a moment's touch. And a young girl regained her life simply because Jesus took her hand. This is the God we serve. This is the God who is worthy of belief and faith in Christ. So let us believe in Jesus. Let us cast all that we have upon Him. And we will see the mighty works of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would forgive our unbelief. That person in Mark 9, it resonates with me so much. I want to believe in you. And I believe so many of us in this room, we want to believe in you. And so many here have believed in you for years and years and years. And their testimony is of your faithfulness. And I'm so grateful to have known them. But we all struggle, Father. We all struggle with unbelief. I believe that's the sin that does so easily beset us, like Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about. May we believe in you. Grant us faith in You. Restore our faith in You. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.